Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Which is Pauline, Poles and Jews in 2018, trying to be friends, but prevented by different versions of a common history. Different versions of a common history. And tonight is the fourth lecture entitled Poles and Jews in the Reborn Republic of Poland. And here we go. Um, as we saw last time, Poland had become had been a victim of the what I call the Metternich status quo. Back in time of the early 1800s, the Congress of Vienna, when they redrew the map of Europe, so there's no Poland. It's Prussia, Austria, and Russia. They gobble it all up, and Poland as a country didn't exist, except in a fake way, you know, this Congress Poland that I told you last time, which really the Russians uh, controlled more and more. Now, uh, why did this happen? The status quo worked well for the great powers. And that, my friends, is how nature operates. It should be that the little creatures control the jungle, but every movie I ever saw, the lion eats the cat, and not the other way around. You know, you know see? It's, uh, it shouldn't be that way, but if you want, if you, listen to what I'm telling you. If you want a stable international political system, you better accommodate the great powers. It's a rule of life. Uh, after the First World War, for example, they certainly did not do that. And the result is you had a terrible mess. And uh, there's what to talk about today with Putin's Europe also, but I'll leave that alone. Because uh, that'll take us too long. The status quo, as I said, worked for the great powers. So the Poles were just up the creek. This was confirmed by the failed rebellions that I told you about that took place in 1830 and 1836, 1863, I mean, when the Poles rose up against the Russians, they were crushed. They didn't have a chance. The little Poland against the uh, Russian army. And uh, listen, as the famous cartoon from that time said, they can't take it, but they cannot take it. They were in a bad spot. We Jews are not unfamiliar with that. We have often in our history been in places where we can't take it, and we cannot take it. It's not a good place to be. So the Poles had no choice but to be patient and wait for the bad guys to do something stupid and self-destructive. But history shows if you wait long enough, countries do that. I'm, I'm serious. Countries have everything going for them. Sooner or later, make big mess-ups. And this happened in Europe in 1914. That's World War I. That's what happened. Really, they had everything going for themselves. Look what a nice neat map of Europe this is. Very few countries. It's France, it's Russia, it's Germany, Austria, so much territory. This is one country, this is another country. It's very well organized, you understand? You don't have all these little states like that today. You have Russia. And so everything's good. All the thieves should have agreed not to fight each other and enjoy the common spoils. Correct? Um, I've told you many times, and I'll tell you perhaps in the future, there was nothing as stupid as World War I. Let's go to the next one. The few countries in Europe ruled the whole world. Look at the Russian Empire. Look at the French Empire all throughout Africa and here and in here. I don't have to tell you about the British Empire, all the red stuff in India, Australia, Canada. Eh. They ruled the, uh, Think of the natural resources they commanded as a result of this. You see what I'm saying? Think of the natural resources plus the cheap labor. 
If that, that's the theory of colonialism. So why you want to do it? Even stupid little Belgium, you can't even see him over here, had the Belgian Congo a million times bigger than Belgium. The dumb Portuguese, who's ever heard of them? They had this and this and that. So in other words, the Europeans should have gotten together every year or so, say congratulations to all of us. We launched ahead of the rest of the world in technology about 100 years ago, and we've used our gap in technology to take over the rest of the world. The Japanese are an Asiatic people, but they joined the club, and they started taking over Korea and other places because they said we joined the technological, so we're like honorary Westerners. Honorary Westerners in the sense that we can be colonialists too. And so what they should have done from the point of a narrow self-interest is agree we should never get into a fight. Anytime something happens, count to 10 and then count to 10 again. Okay? Make sure it doesn't happen. But as we all know, it happened. Now, from the Polish point of view, this was indeed providential. But in order to understand what happens in World War I and how it affected Jews, it is necessary to look at the developments in Poland itself in the, what they call the fin de siècle, the last years before the First World War, which is a very famous and defined period in history. And uh, as I told you the last time, in Poland, for the first time, the middle class rises to power. All during this century, there was very small, almost non-existent Polish middle class. Here, a little bit. There was the nobles, as the peasants, and the Jews filled the role of the middle class under the nobles. So, okay, if the nobleman owns the 7-Eleven, which is what the case was, and he says, I'm getting a Jew, because I don't trust you, you're going to drink up the merchandise. I'm getting, that's what happened, as I told you. So the peasant has nothing to say in the subject. But if now you have the rise of the middle class, their peasants are free, why can't I open the 7-Eleven? How come the Jew has the thing, right? Why can't I compete against him? And not only that, what's he doing there in the first place? He's not Polish. You see? It's, you're in the way. Now, um, two important developments develop in parallel in Poland during this time, led by two very different persons. From our perspective, one guy was the Yitzhak Tov and the other was the Yitzhak Harab. This is the Yitzhak Tov, this is the Yitzhak Harab. One was Joseph Pilsudski and the Yitzhak Harab was Roman Domowski. I know they're not household names in America today, except if you live in the Polish neighborhood, but they were once upon a time. They were world famous. Each of these guys was a Polish patriot, but each developed a different vision of a future Poland. Now, Joseph Pilsudski was a nobleman. He came from that class. He came from the Schlachta that we talked about last time in Lithuania. Remember that movie I showed you with the Jewish guys playing in the bar and all the rest of it? That was Lithuania. Once upon a time, Lithuania had become Polish in terms of everybody but the peasantry. The upper class, who were Lithuanians, had Polonized, like everyone you saw in that movie, and like the poet itself, Mitzkiewicz. I told you, he was a Novartiker, but he's Polish. That's he regards himself. And uh, I'll say it again, the, only the peasants spoke the Lithuanian dialect, and when Lithuania becomes a country in 1918, 1920, they have to kind of reinvent the language and, and write the grammar brand new, you see? So uh, it's Polonized. The point is that uh, Pilsudski comes from such a family. Uh, by the time he grew up, the nobility was finished, of course. He was born in the 1860s. And he had no illusions about restoring the nobles to power. I mean, that's not going to happen anymore. You know, go back to the old days. Actually, he went to a Russian uh, school, Russian gymnasium in Vilna. He's uh, a very famous person. But he did envision, growing up, 
a restoration of the old kingdom of Poland that you and I visited before, but on a thoroughly modern basis. No magnate, noble Michigas, no librum veto, everything is uh, you know, uh, unanimous, no domination of the non-Poles by the Poles, no serfdom, none of the old junk. I want a new, modern, improved version of what we had before, because the idea basically, in his opinion, was a good idea, it just had some faults. So what you have to do is polish the diamond, and then you're back in business. Instead, thank you very much. he wanted a genuinely democratic, modern United States of Eastern Europe. He was a liberal. I'll tell you even more. He was a socialist. He was atheist. It's most unusual coming from his background. Uh, he wanted a country that would be, by definition, multicultural and pluralistic, but whose combined and united power and resources would enable them to fend off Russia and Germany. See, he was a thinker, okay? Imagine, I'm telling you what Pilsudski wanted, not that it happened. He says, suppose we can reconstitute a country that includes, one country includes Poland and Ukraine and Belarus and Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia like in the old days, but on a free federated basis. Everybody will agree. United States of Eastern Europe. Look at this. This will help us against our two mortal enemies. Germany, who wants to stick it to us from one side, and Russia, who's always the enemy from the other side from the German wolf and the Russian bear. By combining our forces, we get a big and powerful rich country. What's wrong with that vision, okay? That's how he uh, articulated it. In other words, he looked to the old kingdom of Poland as a model, but old, obviously a model that needed to be updated and improved. Now here's where I'm coming from. In this kind of a model, there is room for the Jews. They're one of the groups in Poland, in the new United States of Eastern Europe, the United States of Poland, you got your Ukrainians, there's room for them. You got your Lithuanians, there's room for them. You got your Belarusians, and this one, and that one, and the Jews. After all, as I told you before, he comes from that movie. <laughs> he comes from that background. The Jews have always been part of the furniture. You understand? I, the middle class, that'll work itself out like it does in the U.S. You understand? Let it, let, it, let it play itself out normally. But you don't have to bother the Jews. They're not a, a, a threat to us. They don't want their own country or anything like that. So leave them alone. Um, so, as I said before, he likes that Pantadius thing, you know, that movie I showed, that famous vision. Uh, you know, there's room for Yonkel's Tavern, if I can use that expression. The Jews will simply be one of the races, in his vision, of the United States of Poland. Now, notice I said the United States of Poland. He assumes the Poles will be the leading race in such a country, but they won't hurt any of the other groups. Because he can't help it, the guy's Polish, and they're naturally, come on. Everybody knows the Ukrainians are a bunch of hicks. The Lithuanians are a bunch of illiterates. I mean, you know, we'll help them. You get it? By his standard, that's liberal. And it is. But he can't help saying, look, the Poles have had a long culture for this. And the Lithuanians don't even have a language. You know, that kind, of, that kind of talk. Not surprisingly, the Ukrainians, the Lithuanians, and others might have different ideas. And they did, as we shall see. But Pilsudski would retort that geography and the Russian threat created an organic necessity to unite under Polish leadership. Would you rather be under Stalin? Would you rather be under the Tsar? Here's what it is. A, a small country like Lithuania will always be taken over by somebody, unless we unite together. Like Benjamin Franklin used to say, we'll hang together or hang separately. This is the argument. Uh, I mean, how can the Lithuanians be the leading group in the United States of Eastern Europe? This is where he comes from. See, you can't help shed your native you know, pride. Um, so that's the Eitzhar Tov. And now I'm going to switch and tell you about the Eitzhar Elsewhere in Poland, same time, another very important figure emerged. 
His name was Roman Domofsky. He came from a middle-class background, and he accordingly developed a Polish nationalism that didn't look back to the old kingdom of Poland as a positive time, because back in the old kingdom of Poland, the nobles ruled everything, and the middle class didn't exist almost. Their, 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 their powers and their money was always taken by the nobles. He doesn't want that. Okay? He looks at it as a negative time. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth of old was all wrong, as he sees it. The stupid Schlachta and the magnates messed up the Polish people, whose brains and heart we always know are in the middle class. There's a famous set of arguments that Jabotinsky and the others adopted, which is, and we do in America also, which is it's all about the middle class, correct? Everybody wants to be, even the rich people say they're in the middle class, and the poor people pretend or aspire to be in middle class. You very, very few, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, you don't find people, nobody runs for office and says, I'm a member of the upper class. Do you get it? Maybe Trump, maybe. But, you know, uh, most people say, I'm in, I'm in the middle class. Now, um, uh, in the old Poland, no one ever had a time if it was in the middle class. One of the ways, he says, that the nobles and the magnates in the old days messed over Poland, there were many ways. One of the ways, they brought in the Jews. What did they do that for? See what I'm saying? They were so selfish, then rather than give a Polish guy a chance to run a bar, rather than give a Polish guy a chance to be an agent and sell the lumber and all the rest of it, they brought a Jew. How disgusting. He's not one of us. He has a different religion. Actually, a disgusting religion from the Catholic point of view. They dress funny, they look funny, all the rest of it. And the nobles were so unbelievably selfish. So the old Poland was bad. We, when we get a new Poland one day, which is not too far away, we don't want that. We want, obviously, an ethnically cleansed Poland, Poland for the Poles, and all the other junk out. Okay? Go to Palestine, go to America, go wherever you want, just get out of here. This is how he sees it. Okay? Um, so basically, um, because of the nobles, the Jews became the cancer of Poland. That's his expression. Thanks a lot, Schlachta and nobles. Uh, this is what we got running. It's a, it's a Polish country, so what are these guys doing over here? You know, one or two tourists is one thing. They're all over the place. And not only that, they own the businesses. And I can't set up a business because he can outcompete me. Because his father and grandfather and great-father were businessmen, and I'm starting out new. There's nothing, it's my country, it's not your country. Look, they're not Polish. <laughs> you see? He said, well, we've been here forever. I know you've been here forever. That's the problem, but you're not Polish. So as we will develop our theme tonight, which will predominate and gain more traction, the eights of heart or the eights of toe? In your life, which is more powerful, the eights of heart or the eights of toe? Don't answer that. Now, uh, uh, the other, by the way, it's not only about the Jews. The other non-Poles are no damn good either, <laughs> OK? Uh, if you're ever going to be in New Poland, it should have only Poles. If you're Lithuanian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, that kind of stuff, get Polish or get out. You know, let's convert to our culture, religion, all the rest of it, or get out. Lithuanians, Ukrainians, whatever, Germans, drop your culture or get out. Woo. That's who this guy is. Now, um, same for Jews. Uh, if you drop your culture and completely convert to our way and switch over to become Polish in every way, We'll let you in. And that's a chesed. I'm not Hitler. See? That's a chesed. Willing to take you in, but you've got to be completely willing to totally reinvent yourselves. I'm offering you an option. And Domofsky was an eloquent speaker and a writer. He creates a very large political party uh, to support his views, the National Democrats. Um, national 
in the early 20th century means like a fascist, get it? It's interesting, Hitler's a national socialist. What does that mean? He's a socialist. Hitler was in favor of unemployment insurance, of uh, social security, I'm serious, of uh, you know, uh, health benefits, and you know, paid leave for mothers and all that kind of stuff. He's a socialist, but only if you're the right race. So in Poland, he's a Democrat. He wants a Poland in which they'll have a parliament and elections, all the rest of it, but only Poles. You see? Everybody else out. So it's national index, they call them national Democrats. And this has become, unfortunately, one of the really big parties in Poland up to the Holocaust, as you can imagine. Um, now, these are the two important parties I just described before the First World War. The Pilsowski-type guys, what they call the Polish Socialist Party, and the Domowski-type guys. They will eventually recreate Poland, but which vision will predominate? What will the new Poland look like when it happens? It will indeed be, as I told you, a struggle between the Yitzhar and the Yitzhar Tov. One vision will appeal to the best in Polish culture and the other to the worst. When the war broke out, now you have this background, let's get to World War I. When the war breaks out, as we all know, it was unexpected. You can go back to the old Barbara Tuchman books, all the rest of it. It was a nice, quiet summer in 1914, and everybody was at the uh, you know, uh, spas and at the beach and all the rest of it. And then they shot the Archduke, and the whole place went crazy, right? As we all know. Now, uh, since Germany and Austria and Russia are fighting each other for the first time, the Poles immediately say like this, maybe the chance for us. If you're Polish and you're living in August, September 1914, something has happened now that has them for 100 years. The three gangsters are fighting each other. On the one side is Germany and Austria, and the other side is Russia. Somebody's going to lose, somebody's going to win, but somebody's going to lose. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is our chance. Because as long as there was peace and the status quo, there's no chance. So maybe now it's our chance, all right? But who's going to win? The trick, of course, is to get on the winning side, obviously. Not that there's any guarantee. Remember, Napoleon won, and then he didn't, he didn't give the Poles what they wanted. You know, that could happen, and it kind of will. But on the other hand, it's the best chance we got. I just want to tell you something. Design is thought in precisely the same terms, correct? As long as it's the old pre-World War reality, it's not a chance of snowballing hell Do you ever get a Jewish state. The Turkish Empire is not going to give nothing. The minute the war broke out, Jabotinsky, you know, ooh, you know, this one went, you know, many parallels. Uh, what the Poles ended up doing was playing both sides. Pilsudski, back Germany and Austria, he figured if Russia was defeated, then Poland, minus some German-held territories, minus Poles and Galicia, but uh, let's put it this way, including Lithuania and Belarus and Ukraine, will be reconstituted. We'll get a country back. And once we get a country back, get Sukhanates, and maybe we'll get the rest back, you know. He's not starry-eyed. With great prescience, he perceives, and here he was a prophet, that in the end the Germans will win in the Eastern Front, but they'll lose in the Western Front, and that'll be good for the Poles. Okay? That was actually an amazing Keshman. Okay? He said like this, the Germans are stronger than the Russians, so eventually they'll beat the Russians, which would happen. On the other hand, they're not going to be stronger than the French, the British, and certainly the Americans, so they'll lose here. So these guys will kick the Russians out, and these guys will kick the Germans out, and we'll be left with the country. That's exactly what happened. Now, to, to see ahead like that was a, to be quite a, a clever fellow, you know, to read the tea leaves, as we'd say today. Uh, and indeed, the German army won in the Eastern Front. Most people don't know that much about World War I. <laughs> they don't even know much about World War II. But World War II had the Holocaust and the, you know, and the Pearl Harbor, so that's more in the movies. World War I was really bad. All you know is from seeing the movie, All Quiet on the Western Front, 
And there, but there was a western front, it was an eastern front. Here is the western front, which ran from the ocean to Switzerland. It's one long line of trench, two long lines of trenches. On the one side is the Germans, the other side is the French and the British. And like in, the, like in that movie, uh, all quiet in the western front, A charges B and gets wiped out by the machine guns, and then B charges A and gets their wiped out by the machine guns. That went and went for four years, and that's everybody got killed and maimed. Okay, now put that aside. Now I'm going to talk about the eastern front. There is a different story. The eastern front is really very little known, and it's very fascinating if you're interested in that kind of thing, especially uh, history of warfare. Because the Germans won the war, World War I Eastern Front. Not many people know that. Um, but the Germans defeated the Russians by the time World War I was over. By, by the time you get to the beginning of 1918, the Russians had to sign what they called the Treaty of Brest, the Treaty of Brisk, in which they gave everything away to uh, Germany. Uh, by the time it's over, the Germans were able to annex or free the Russians, kick the Russians out of the old kingdom of Poland. All of Poland, all of Belarus, all of Ukraine, I promise you. All of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Uh, it was quite a victory. And the reason is because the Germans were very professional soldiers. The reason they lost in World War II, because Hitler kept interfering. And he was a corporal, so he didn't know what he was doing. Remember, he said, stand and fight and don't retreat. Sometimes you got to retreat. You're saying? A real professional soldier knows. Sometimes you do this. Some, you know, it's, it's like a doctor or a psychologist. They have a lot of different bag of tricks. If this particular therapy doesn't work, then they'll resort to another one. As opposed to another person who's not a professional, he knows only one therapy. So if the, if the chicken soup didn't work, it's all over. You understand? So in World War II, Hitler constantly interfered with the generals, and he's the one who lost them to war. In World War I, the generals had complete carte blanche. The Kaiser did not interfere. And so on the Eastern Front, you had some famous German generals, Hindenburg, and Ludendorff, and Mackensen, and they did it right, very professional. So I'll give you an example. Every time it was the winter, they stopped and dug in and held out to the winter's over, and then they moved ahead. So they didn't get stuck like Napoleon and Hitler in the Second World War. So the Germans won big on the Eastern Front. They drove the Russians out of the whole area of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. As I told you, take a look at this. This is, I mean, here's Germany. This is where the, the Germans ended up. Look what they took away from Russia. All of the Ukraine. Remember Stalingrad? Well, they had it over here in the First World War. They got the Crimea. They got all of Belarus. And here's your um, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And that was a major, major German victory. Cost a lot of men. Wasn't easy. Took four years, et cetera, et cetera. But they won. So was uh, Poland now no longer is under Russia. Let's put it that way. So the question becomes like this. So what are the Germans and the Austrians going to do with the land that they took over? Uh, just give it to the Poles in a grand gesture? That would have really been an act of extraordinary statesmanship. Okay? It would have created a friendly giant buffer zone between Germany and Russia. That would be the right thing to do. We said we took it over, and now we give it to you guys. Ukrainians take Ukraine. Belarus take Belarus. Lithuania take Lithuania. Germany gave it to you. Don't forget who gave you the present. And now make the best of it. And that would be a, a, a chachma. But Germany was not capable of thinking big and generous. Okay? There was no German Marshall Plan in the First World War. Can't see? What, what I just told you is what the Americans did at the end of the Second World War. What did we do to Japan? What did we do to Germany? We gave them everything. In fact, we gave them more money than in the first place. Smart move. Because these type of people had wisdom. You get it? You convert an enemy into a friend. That's a wisdom. The Germans, they can't think like that. We took it, we hold it. It's ours. You understand? It's, it's, it's a European thing. They're not capable of, of thinking. Napoleon wasn't capable either, by the way. 
And so uh, the result is that there's a land grab. Germany said like this, we'll give the Poles part, but we're taking a half of Poland, kicking all the Poles out and moving Germans. I'm, I'm serious, they said this. You understand? Kicking all the Jews and Poles out of there, we're going to make it all German. That's where Hitler got the idea later on. And the Austrians said something uh, similar. And so the result is the Poles were alienated. They said, you said you're going to help us, and now you're going to do the opposite. But in the event, it didn't matter. I'm not going to give you all the details of 1914-18. Germany was defeated. Pilsudski, who was imprisoned by the Germans when he wouldn't go along, was released. He returns to Poland on November 11th, 1918, when the war is over, to proclaim independence and set up a Polish army. There is Pilsudski landing at a jail in the... Uh, he arrives in Warsaw, the Warsaw train station. If you're Polish, there's like a very famous thing, you know, they have a national holiday, all, all, all this sort of thing. And he says, guys, Poland is back in business, and here we go, the first thing we gotta do is have an army. Okay, fine. Um, meanwhile, the other guy, Roman Domowski, had played the other side. He was working the Allied side. He didn't side with the Germans, Austrians. He went to Washington, D.C., to Paris, to London, those kind of places, but he's not likable, <laughs> okay? Because he would come and talk to the British and especially the uh, Americans and he said, what do you want? I want all of Europe, you know what I mean? Said, Why? The others are inferior races, the Poles should rule them. So you're saying you've been persecuted, but now you want to persecute them. Look, look, at, um, look at Woodrow Wilson. This is the Moscow Eternal. In September, the National Committee recognized by the French, I think it was 1917, in the legitimate government of Poland, that's the Moscow's group. British and Americans were less enthusiastic about it but they recognized it as a government a year later. But the Americans refused to provide backing for what they regarded as his excessive territorial claims. This is what Americans have always hated to do. That's where you get isolationism. We do not want, as a nation in our history, to get involved in European questions about territory, because who can untangle that business? This is momish why you had the isolationism. This is momish why people did not like Woodrow Wilson. What are you going over to Europe for? To help Romania beat Hungary, to help Hungary beat Romania. Nothing's good. No, I'm serious. This is, what I'm telling you is what George Washington said, and Thomas Jefferson, and John Quincy Adams. They say Europe is such a mess, and they have quarrels that are going on forever. You know, it's like I tell you now, go try to fix Iraq. Didn't George W. Bush say, oh, we're going to fix Iraq? <laughs> now that we're a little wiser, you know, he said, how can you even think like that? Go fix Afghanistan. Are you going to put tribe A over tribe B and tribe, you know, it, it, it doesn't work. You just have to understand there's a certain place in the world and they gate us, you see? So anyway, look at this. Woodrow Wilson said, I saw Domowski and Paderewski in Washington and I asked him to define Poland. And he presented me with a map which declaimed a large part of the earth, okay? Which is exaggeration, maybe just trying to, because they'll say, oh, this used to be part of Poland once upon a time and all the rest of it. So this is what's happening. If you're Polish, you know all this, like, you know, like we know about American history or something like that. This is their national narrative. Now, the fact is, now it gets interesting, or, or maybe not, uh, the Germans had pulled out because they were defeated by the Americans, the British, and the French. So you have a funny situation. There's a country or territory called Poland, but what happens now? Okay, Poland's a fact, but what are the borders? <laughs> what are the boundaries of Poland? By this time, the Lithuanians say, we want our state, and the Latvians say, we want our state, and the Ukrainians and the Belarusians. Now, Pilsudski said, no, 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 that's not the plan. The plan is we should all unite together under Polish, like that. Let's constitute a new commonwealth, a new improved version. Well, guess what? What do the others tell them? Lo, lo, as they say, you know, I said, no, that's not what we want to do. 
And Pilsen could say, no, don't you understand? It'll be better for all of us. We don't see it that way. Maybe in five, ten years we'll talk about it. Maybe meanwhile, just leave us alone. And he can hear that his own Yitzhar got the better of him. He says, you know, it can't be. Because he was very smart. I told you, the person I'm talking about could play chess. And he saw the moves. And he did foresee, already in 1918, if we can't put it together, one day Hitler and Stalin will take it over. It's just a matter of logic. Meaning, Russia will t t pick up one against the other. We have to do this. But just because he saw it that way, he couldn't make the others see it that way. The other Ukrainians saw it like this. Listen, we, we were shafted by the Poles for about 500 years. We had enough of that, thank you very much. We'd like to have our own country. And he's saying, no, don't you see? So it didn't work. Um, and to complicate matters, Russia, after the Tsar was taken and knocked out, took over by Lenin and, 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 and Trotsky, by the communists, okay, now Bolsheviks. And what did the Bolsheviks do? They raised a giant red army. And what did they want to do with the red army? Take over everything. So it's like the Tsar coming back on steroids. You understand? And they take over everything. And Trotsky turned to be a genius. He had a huge army out of nothing, and they started conquering and destroying right and left. The result is a whole bunch of wars ensue. This is the part of World War II that nobody knows anything about. Although a book was recently written, I saw it in the uh, library. Somebody really spent a fat book talking about exactly this business. What happened? But you need a scorecard. You know, no American's going to read this book. What happened when the Russians tried to take over Estonia, and then the Lithuanians got involved in the rear, and then the Poles got in here, and this and that and the other? It's unbelievably chaotic, and to pull apart the strings and it's almost impossible, except for somebody who eats and breathes this sort of thing. Uh, but that's what happened. Uh, this is why my father, for example, who was a young man at that time, ended up serving in five different armies, probably in five different weeks. Because here comes this one, and they draft you, and there comes that one. And, no, I'm serious. You know, th th this is called Eastern Europe, or this part of Eastern Europe, 1918 and 1922. That is what happened. And so uh, what's the result? You have a whole bunch of uh, wars. To make it simple, there are three basic factors. Number one, the communists obviously would like to take over everything. Number two, Pilsudski would like to take over everything. Number three, each little state doesn't want to be taken over. They like to be independent. So those are the three variables, and everybody's fighting around that. You know, now that these countries are free, they make movies. And the Latvians, for example, I saw, just made some gigantic gong with the wind of their own about their epic in 1919 and how they fought off everybody to make a Latvia and all this kind of business in Riga, you know. So it's extremely confusing. And all I can tell you is that Pilsudski, whatever his ideals, ended up alienating everybody, including Germany, because he said we want to take the part of Poland that Germany took before, right? And uh, he committed Polish aggression, as you would say, and everybody ended up hating the Poles. So he may have been smart, but he wasn't that smart. You understand? He could have been smart, but uh, he ended up alienating everybody, as we shall see. And in the middle of all these, so Poland's fighting Lithuania in nasty ways, and Latvia, and they're fighting Ukraine, and they're fighting Belarus, and they're fighting Russia. And in all this, in the middle comes a giant mortal threat to Poland, what they call the Russian-Polish War of 1920, when the Red Army made a big move to take over whole Poland and came to the one-yard line, literally. Uh, what happened very briefly is Pilsudski launched the Polish army to take over the Ukraine because he said it's going to be part of Poland, and anyway, we know the Russians to have it. Then the Red Army launched a big counteroffensive which busted the Poles and chased them all the way back into Poland. The Red Army invades Poland, I mean, in central Poland, and heads for Warsaw. It looks like it's going to be another Russian victory. Like I say, they were on the one-yard line. And then Poland had its famous moment under Pilsudski when they rallied 
to the fact he called all the peasants out and, and so forth. Here, they just made a movie, naturally, they just made a movie in uh, Poland uh, two, three years ago called Battle of Warsaw, 1920. And this is their great epic. And I only want to point out before I show it to you, we don't need the sound on it. Uh, what the, I'll show you very briefly is that um, the movie producer is a guy named Jerzy Hoffman, who's Jewish, totally super assimilated, but he's Jewish. And so he's very careful when he makes these Polish history movies to show you where the Jews were and all this. And you'll see that they all rally to the flag, all the Catholic Polish boys and girls, uh, but the Hasidic Jews are digging the trenches, which, which is a true story. Meaning, here comes the Russian army, they say, well, we need people to come out and dig over here and you know, do the, the earthworks and all the rest of it. And you'll see them, part also, because he wants to make the point to the Poles that the Jews were patriotic also in their way. Take a look at this. I'll do it, I'll explain this, you see over here. Pilsudski launched a uh, national campaign in every church. The priest is saying, come join the army because it's the red threat. And the Russians are coming, and it's going to be terrible, and that's how you spread the word all across the Catholic country. And everybody should drop what they're doing and, and join the army. And it's a Catholic country, so everywhere is a church. And the peasant party send out people to speak. There's a thing called the peasant party. And they speak to all the peasants, and wherever they go, and they're reading this proclamation, come and join the, the fight. Very dramatic music, as you can see over here. And it's a mortal threat to all of us, and Poland is, uh, you know, facing victory or death. And in different places, they're all speakers, and they, the farmers come from all over the place. This really happened. The farmers come from all over the place, and, they say, and the priests are giving them a mishabarach, as you see, you know, and all, you know, because it's a Catholic country. And here the people, the, the, the workers are leaving the factories to join the army. This really happened. In fact, and here the Catholic youth groups are, uh, with the priests, are, um, you know, getting in the, uh, uh, what's the right word, volunteering. Uh, and here's the Hasidim digging the, uh, the, the, the trenches. Look at that. Yeah. It's, it's, he's an assimilated Jew, so everyone has a Tal's Kham, but the Tal's Kham don't have tits, as I noticed. Okay? So he knows what he knows. But what's the point? Uh, they were up to the one yard line, meaning the Russian army got to the suburbs of Warsaw. It's like that. But here, at the last minute, Pilsudski, who turned out to be, he never went to school for military, turned out to be a military genius, and he saw that the two quarreling Soviet commanders, Tukhachevsky and Stalin, made a strategic error leaving a hole in their lines. I won't bore you with the details, but the way they organized themselves, they left a hole. And he counterattacked through that hole and he busted the Russians and kicked them out of Poland, a gigantic victory. It's called the Miracle of the Vistula, the Miracle of Warsaw. And if you're Polish, it's like, I don't know, Valley Forge or something like that. So here was the Russian general, Tukhachevsky, who had the right idea. Here was the other one, Stalin, who had the wrong idea. But if anybody ever said Stalin had the wrong idea, he got shot, so you know how to say that. And no, I'm serious. And anybody, by the way, he knew that he was right, and he waited 20 years and then killed him. You know, that's it, because that's it, in the late 30s. It's a very famous thing. Marshall took a chest with the genius of the Red Army, but he was right and I was wrong, and he can never get over that. And they tortured him, broke his teeth, and they did all this kind of stuff. He wasn't exotic, don't worry about it. None of these guys are nice. You, you don't have to cry over him. Uh, what was the result of everything I just said? Joseph was supposed to be the man of the hour, the greatest Pole in the history of one of them. Okay? It's like another Sobieski the greatest living Pole, which is good for the Jews. You, you see where I'm going with this? This is good for the Jews. Now, meanwhile, elsewhere, the diplomatic struggles were taking place at the Versailles Conference, because after the First World War was over, Woodrow Wilson and everybody got together to redraw the map of Europe again. 
It's 100 years since the Vienna. So all the different nationalities are saying, give us this, give us that, you know, uh, this is your chance to grab. May I point out, Chaim Weitzman was there making the case for the Balfour Declaration. Why not? Everybody else got a piece. We want something too. And he was successful, was he not? So here you have the Poles, and uh, Domovsky and Paderewski, who was a famous pianist, concert pianist. Uh, so they made the case for Poland, okay? As you see there, he, he used to play all the concerts and then say, now give Poland more territory and whatever. I, I mean, uh, in this doggy dog atmosphere of the Versailles Conference, where everybody's trying to get the other, as you can imagine, uh, the French emerge as strong supporters of Poland, strictly for cynical raison d'etat. The French say like this, we don't like Russia, we don't like uh, Germany. A strong Poland will help us against Russia and Germany. Meaning they don't care about Poland. That's who the French are, you just gotta get over it. They have raised selfishness to the highest principle. And that's who they are today, and they always have been, they'll never change. Leopard cannot change the spots. Israel learned this big time, did they not? Okay, so whenever the French just get over it, they, you know, selfishness is what they live for. Um, but anyway, Poland take whatever they can get. The British were disgusted by the aggressive new state. Louis George, the prime minister, and his expert in the Polish uh, uh, affair, Polish matters, was Louis Namir. No, it's not. It's Lazar Namorowski. <laughs> you understand? Louis Namir was a, a Polish Jew who reinvented himself as, a, as Oxford professor. Okay? He's actually a very famous British historian once upon a time and was big Zionist at that moment. He was the secretary of Chaim Weizmann, and he hates Poland. Why? A Jew hates Poland! <laughs> like that. And let me put it this way. If he would have been in contact with the Pilsudski types, it would have been a different story. But the type of people he meets are the Domovsky types. Why do I want to help a bunch of anti-Semitic? Literally. You get it? You know, that, that's who they are. And so the result is, it's bad blood between England and Poland. And now, with these uh, dramatic events taking place in 1919-1920, we come to Polish anti-Semitism, that question. Pilsudski himself was okay, but he got a big army and the army officers and a lot of the generals didn't like Jews. Now what does it mean, not like Jews? If you tell me you don't like Jews, I don't care. If you do something about it, then I care. Then I care, all right? When they came to a town in these wars, and when did they not? The Russians took over this town, then the Poles kicked them out, then the Russians came back, then the Lithuanians came in, then this one came in, then the whites and the reds. So you're always being invaded, not invaded. As I said many times, if your grandparents came to this country before the First World War, go to the cemetery tomorrow and say thank you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because they ducked a lot of both. My, my parents were there when all this junk was going on. And maybe yours was also. It was not fun. And uh, you get a lift hand to mouth and you do whatever you could do. So if the Polish army comes in, anytime they think a Jew is doing anything, whatever, they don't need much of an excuse. Just round up people, shoot them, rapes, uh, you know, pillage the stores and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and they often molested the uh, local Jews. Here's General Holler, who had a Polish army that they imported from France, meaning they were fighting French and they brought them to Poland. I don't know about him, but his soldiers were bad news. And I noticed, because when I was growing up, my father was showing me to talk about he lived in Minsk, and the Holler chickens came in, and you know, made pogroms and all the rest, and the Jews shot back at them, and all kind of stuff. So it is what it is. Now, it's not Hitler, I want to be clear about that. But on the other hand, in Pinsk, they made a pogrom and killed 95 people. In Lvov was a thing, 150 people. In this town, was 150 people. So by the standards of World War II, it was chicken feed. But by the standards of, of, of the first time, it wasn't, okay? Uh, two big factors exacerbated the Polish military anti-Semitism. Number one, communism is a Jewish thing. We all know that. 
communists took over Russia. It's a Jewish plot, obviously. Uh, so therefore, if there is communism against Poland, it's Jew against Catholic. It's the oldest thing in the book. You know, you're going back to Judas. They want to kill Jesus again. After all, who's the head of the Red Army? Who's the animating all the communism? It's a Jewish uh, business. You understand? And consequently, if you're a Polish soldier, especially a captain, a colonel, you know, a, a smaller rank, all the Jews are commies anyway and just kill them. The situation gets more complicated, but what I'm going to show you right now from that movie, although it's in Polish, but you'll get the, I'll, I'll explain what's happening and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's a very good movie. They take, the, the Reds come and take over town. As soon as they take over town, the commissar, who I can't tell is a Jewish type or not Jewish type, a lot of, a lot of the commissars in Charleston time were Jewish. That just made matters worse. You know that, like I say, I don't know any family I never met that didn't have some communist relative, whether they'll admit it or not, at that time especially. And he comes in and he tells them, okay, this is now part of the communist system, and we're electing a new communist city council to run the place. Who wants to volunteer to be on the city council? Nobody. Okay, you, and you, and you, and you. What are you supposed to say? Get it? So you'll see, among others, he picks a couple of Hasidic Jews. T, you, you, and you. And, you know, sticks a red thing on them. And now, whether they like it or not, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're the communists. And tell me what happens a month later when the polls come back. You see? Take a look at it. It's very realistic. Here, the red's taking over town. These are the communists. They push everybody to the town square. You see all the Hasidic Jews? With the tzitzis? Here's the commissar. So you see, now this is part of the communist uh, system. Right, and now you're going to be part of the revolution, and I want members to the city council. Come on, volunteer, step forward. Who wants to volunteer? Nobody wants to volunteer. You, you're chosen. They put the red badge on him. He's a Hasidic guy. See the tzitzis? Right there in the bottom of the You, you, you. And if you say no, they'll shoot you. Okay, so as I said before, it's complicated because the Polish army comes in and says, this guy was a communist. Uh, they're not, you know, in that kind of environment, just shoot him, you see? Or his cousin, or something like that. And what happens in worse? What about it's like happened in Lvov, which was a famous and terrible pogrom? Very complicated. Because Lvov is complicated. Half the town is Ukrainians, half the town is Polish. When the Germans pull out in 1918, the Ukrainians say, we want to take over. The Polish say, we want to take over. Next thing you know, it's got, like, Northern Ireland, two groups fighting each other. is a big Jewish population, about 50%. The Jews say, we don't want to join A, we want to join B. So the Jews form a JDL of their own, a Shomim. Right? Every Jew gets a 22. And then the question becomes like this. So who do you side with, this one or that one? And the Jews say, well, neutral. We're just pretending uh, helping the Jews. And what happens if some Ukrainian soldiers get drunk or Polish and they come and try to do something in the Jewish neighborhood? Jews will shoot them. What'd you come to my neighborhood for? Next thing you know, the Poles said, they're signing with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are signing with the Jews. They shot at my event. They killed my brother. They killed my uncle. They killed the priest's brother. 
right? And the way I heard it, he wasn't doing nothing. Of course, that's not true. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just such a terrible tangle. This is where the Zionists came from, I told you. They said, we can't stand it in Europe. Always be involved in these, you know, messes. We, we, we have to have just our own territory. We have to be involved by, by somebody else because you can never get right. And here you have a perfect example of what I'm talking about in the aftermath of the First World War. Um, especially the Poles, they said, how could you side with the Ukrainians? In other words, why didn't you immediately join the Polish side? Uh, i tell you, this is the Polish foreign ministry used to put this out every time in the 1920s and 30s. The Jews, it's well known, betrayed Poland in Lvov in 1920. Jews said, what? You, you killed us. When the, the Germans pulled out, it was two armies that formed, Ukrainian and Polish. Why did the Jews side with the Polish? Now here's the argument. We took into the country. We protected against the Ukrainians for hundreds of years. It was Khmelnytsky and these other guys who went around and killed the Jews. Who saved you all the time? It's Poland. Who let you be here and have all the bars on it? It's Poland. And now you're looking for, you hear it. What I'm trying to tell you is it's not a crazy argument. This is what I mean by saying that it's no good in the Gullis. It's no good because people have pulls and claims against you and they're not crazy claims. And so what do you want to be there for? And what is happening in Poland could happen in other places where you have ethnic uh, uh, quarrels. If there were Jews today in Iraq, if there were 150,000 Jews like there were once upon a time, who are you favor, the Shiites or the Sunnis? I mean, the same thing. If you don't do the right side, the other side kills you. You see, this is the terrible reality of living in these ethnic environments in which you have all this lethality. So anyhow, in the old days, you could do small pogroms and get away with it in the 1800s. You kill 50 here, 100 there. But in 1919 and 1920, it's a new day. There's now a very large and influential community of Jews living in a place called the USA. And guess what? Those Jews came there recently from where? From Poland, <laughs> from Russia. Notice the people reading about this in the paper in Baltimore and New York City and Boston and places like that, in Philadelphia and Chicago, are Polish even themselves or Lithuanians. So they read about this, it's my uncle who got killed or somebody I know got killed. And, uh, and the Polakian, you know, and says, nothing has changed. And they're in a free country called America. So they can go and protest to the US government. If it's 100 years ago, the Eastern European Jews don't exactly do that. What they do is they go to the Reformed Jews. No, I'm serious. There's nothing wrong with this. And they say, you guys are educated. You do it. And they do. Okay? Because after all, call Yisrael or If we don't look out for each other, who's going to look out for us? Right? If I'm not my brother's keeper, then who is my brother's keeper? <laughs> right? Who's going to keep me? We have no choice. So American Jews, historically, have always, you know, sometimes they did a better job, sometimes worse. But usually they look out for the others. Correct? When we heard about Soviet Jew, we didn't say what's happening over there. As we all know, in World War II, the American Jews did not do such a good job at that. And we're still feeling the guilt today. But usually, they did something about it. And so, um, let's put it this way. Everything I just described hurts the image of the new Poland, which is trying to get traction out there and support so that the world will recognize them and give them the territory that they want 
And the Poles consider themselves totally righteous because that's who they are. And here, all of a sudden, they're reading international press, the Polak and a bunch of Atasemitin, pogromists, they murder people, they kill babies. Uh, people like that don't deserve a country. And the Poles fly in the rage. They say, us? You know, we helped the Jews for hundreds of years, and now they're stabbing us in the back. And it gets unbelievably complicated. Um, and by the way, this drives the Demofsky guys crazy. And it's a perfect storm, okay? Because it's, you know, different narratives. It's not that different than the fights we're having today with the Poles, right? That you read about in the press now with the uh, Holocaust, all the rest of it. It's a very complicated business and it's, it's messy. You know, they have a few points, we have points. They see it this way, we see it a different way. You know, it's, it's, it's tangled. That's why I chose this topic. But it's very hard to get across in a few talks, but at least I want you to know the basics of it. It's not simple. Like everybody else in Europe, Poland is in the midst of five years of war and faces imminent starvation. I'll say it again. The whole Europe, at that time, 1990, was starving. There wasn't enough food because the, the armies destroyed the crops. There was the famous influenza epidemic. There were other malnutrition things going on. And just imagine if you live in that country like we saw over here. Here comes the Russian army. Here comes the Polish army. Here comes this army. The food is gone. The house is destroyed. The economy is there. The farmers are shot. The fields are destroyed. The horses are stolen. The chickens are eaten. The pigs are killed. This is, this is called 1914 to 1922. That, that's what happens in these kind of business, like going with the wind. Remember going with the wind? This is, this is all destroyed. Once upon a time it was nice. Then it was all just, this is what happened over and over again. And so the whole world, including Poland, depends on one man in 1919. That's Herbert Hoover. Okay? I told you last week or the other day, Herbert Hoover organized all the food for Belgium in a crazy way. It's an unbelievable uh, uh, feat. And when World War I started, when the United States got involved in World War I, the first thing Woodrow Wilson, the first thing Woodrow Wilson did when America went into war, he said to Herbert Hoover, come to America, I'm putting you in charge of the food. Okay? Because you have the ability to organize everything. And he did. And Hoover you know, organized the U.S. and Canada, or the only countries that had the food. And they have to allot it to all the other countries. And it's in, which means you have to set up transportation systems and uh, distribution systems and uh, according to nutritionists, it's, in, it's an incredible story, right? And he did it, even Russia, Lenin, had to go begging to Hoover because they were starving and dying by the millions and Hoover said, only if I control it. Lenin said, no, we, we, can't, we control it. Then he said, I'm not coming. So Lenin had no choice but to give in very unwillingly. And he saved millions and millions of uh, people and babies and all the rest of it. So America had all the food. That's, what, that's where I'm going. America had all the food. And so you have to go to Hoover. Hoover was a big anti-communist. I say again, anti-communist. And therefore, he's like this, I want Poland to be Matzliach. On the other hand, Hoover's secretary is Louis Strauss. This is when he was a little older. And Louis Strauss is the guy that helped Israel. He, um, that's a whole story by itself, but he was a shoe salesman from Richmond, Virginia, who, when World War I broke out, went to Washington, D.C., and went to Herbert Hoover, and he said, I want to work for you, and I'll do it for free. And even though it was Jewish, all the rest of it, and he wouldn't, look, he wouldn't take no. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll give you a week, see how you do. And he got, he got the job. It's an interesting story. He came from a very religious, reformed Jewish family in Richmond, Virginia. And I don't mean that to be funny. I'm serious. His mother was a very, you know, the old South took religion very seriously, correct? Very seriously. And so his mother 
Richmond, Virginia took the reformed Jewish very seriously. And it's not, it was not, and uh, make a long story short, a week or two later, his, Hoover's chief secretary had to go to another job. So he became the Jewish, the chief secretary of Herbert Hoover, his number one assistant. And Louis Strauss is an ultra-reformed Jew, very anti-Zionist, but he's a Yid Shahid. And so the Jews are getting killed in Poland. And he says to Hoover, he basically goes, listen, you better tell the Poles to keep this off for their own sake, because they're going to alienate the whole world, and then Russia will take them over. Get it? So tell them to stop the pogroms to help Poland, even if you're not doing it for the Jews. And Hoover said, that's a good part. And he went to the Poles and he said, you better cut this out. You see, because it's hurting you, it's only helping the Russians. This is so true. Anytime there's fights in Europe, the Russians gain. The Russians are very good, always have been, in getting A and B to fight each other. Because then they pick up the pieces, don't they? That's, that's how they operate, okay? That is how they operate. And so, basically, you go over there, as an anti-communist, he said, don't do it. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had pressure from the American Jews and the liberals in America, and so he appointed, he didn't want to, but he appointed what they called the Morgenthau Commission under Henry Morgenthau. This is the father of Roosevelt's Morgenthau. So if Roosevelt's Morgenthau was assimilated, this guy was assimilated, assimilated. He was as Gaish a Jew as you can, I'm serious. He's an unbelievably assimilated Jew, no Seder, no nothing. Very anti-Zionist, very, very anti-Jewish, and all the rest of it, even though he was a Jew. So you, see, you investigate the pogroms in Poland with a couple of army officers, and naturally, you know, when he came around, he said, well, there were a few people killed, but not many, and all the rest. And, and Wilson said, well, at least I was the Oitzi, you know. But even with all that, the Poles saw it's not a good idea. And anyway, we're not as bad as people say. We actually were the best friends of the Jews. And now they're stabbing us in the back. And so where's it going? Um, all we know is that by the time the process is over, at the Versailles Conference, the American Jews sent a big delegation headed by the leading reformed Jew at that time, a good man, 100 years ago, one of the great attorneys in the United States, uh, you know, Supreme Court material, Louis Marshall, who was a very eminent lawyer and a progressive uh, Republican, and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt Republican, and he organized the American Jews to come and say like this, if these new countries want to be independent and get recognition, they have to sign a treaty that they won't bother their Jews or they won't write it in those words, they'll say, won't bother minorities. And Poland and Lithuania and Latvia and all these other countries have to say, we'll give them religious freedom, cultural freedom, so if they want to have schools in Yiddish, they can have schools in Yiddish, they want schools in Lithuania, they can have schools in Lithuania and all the rest of it. And uh, you know, they have the right to their day off religiously and all this other kind of stuff. And if you don't do that, they don't ask for America or England, anybody to help you. And these countries hated it uh, on many levels. Okay, on many levels, but they had no choice and they did it. So you tell me how they're going to keep it. But they, so, so once again, it's a good idea, but if you force a kid to do it, then they become resentful, don't they? So what can I tell you? This is the history of Poland. This is the history of Eastern Europe. It is what it is. Uh, so he was, let's go to the next one. Next one. Okay. Louis Marshall was the uh, tribune of the American Jews. He was their great... Uh, a champion in international law. But what good is international law? Here was his opponent, Chauvinism, Polish Stalas Dymowski, you understand? And uh, Poland, 
Balkarcha Shalobatavos, as they say, had to sign a treaty. So did Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. The only country that kept it, it meant, was Czechoslovakia. All the other countries didn't mean it. And they all cheated. And the Jews had a lot of Tsarists there in the 1920s and 30s. But that's what happened. Now, by 1922, the wars are over, and the Polish state, which had not been around for 120 years, assumes a definite form, but they have messy borders everywhere because they're fighting and the borders were where the fighting stopped. And a lot of times the Poles just stole land or to them they're not stealing, you see? And so you end up, this is Poland, but look at this. This whole area that I'm pointing to right now is really Lithuania, they just grabbed it, you see? Because Pilsudski is like this. I'm from here, so this should be part of Poland, right? What you see over here, this strip, where I'm pointing to now, is really Ukraine and white Russia. That's what they beat the communists and they took that away from them. So they said, we're actually doing you a favor like saving you from the Reds. But the Belarusians and the Ukrainians, even though it is true, they don't see it that way because they say, now we don't want to be under the Poles. And Poles says, so what do you want to do? Go back to communism? You know. So again, yeah, messy. That's why I say messy borders. Uh, the worst is this. Look what, uh, yeah, go back one. Look at this. Is Poland sticking in between Germany? Did you see that? that? That's not too smart. It's called the Polish Corridor. Here's Germany with an interruption. <laughs> so you're German, but then at a certain part, you have to cross over another country. Do you really want to do that? that, that that's a sore waiting to happen. Hitler will use that later on. That's how World War II started. Let's go to the next one. Here it is specifically, Germany, Germany, and here's the Polish corridor, and here's the city of Danzig, which is a, it's an independent state of its own. So it's ruled by the Poles, but the majority is Germans. Ay vey. You see? Welcome, my friends, to Europe. And uh, it's very confusing. By the time this process is over, half the Lithuanian people are now under Poland. Look at this. Here's Lithuania. Here's the part that Pilsudski grabbed, including Vilna. Vilna is the capital of Lithuania. No, it's not. It's a Polish city. How do you say it's a Polish city? Uh, my grandfather was born there. That's what he said. No, he meant it. By the way, most of the people living in Vilna spoke Polish. But Lithuanians will say, but that's because they got Poland. I really did Lithuania. So again, it's a mess. And if you're one of the 90,000 Jews living in Vilna, who do you side with? You, you, you see? I'm just trying to tell you the crazy, quote, situation of the 1920s and the 1930s. I didn't do this. They did. So it means that, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Um, if you're Litvish, you're divided in two countries. Many of the Lithuanians live in a country called Lithuania. That makes sense, the Republic of Lithuania. Many of the Lithuanians, including Jews, live in a country called Poland, which was seized by Poland. Do you see? You don't need me to tell you that Vilna is a famous city of the Litvaks. Uh, let's put it the way, the Vilna gone, right? That's not Hasidic, you understand? It's, a, it's, a famous. it's Poland. So let's go to the next one. If you're the Chavitz Chaim, or Chaim Reiser Grzynski, you live in Poland, even though you're not Hasidic, you're Litvish. So a significant, let me put it this way, Demir Yeshiva is in Poland. The uh, Baranovich Yeshiva Chonowasman and the Kamenitz Yeshiva Baruch Berlibowitz is in Poland. Either they're not Polish. By the time the wars are over, that's how the way it works. And I can tell you, let's go back one. The Lithuanians were so enraged that this happened. There's even more. I just don't want to spend time to give you all the details. So this happened that they basically declared war in Poland and had a, a, a closed border for almost 20 years. So if you were Jewish, 
you couldn't go and visit your Bubba here or there because you're not allowed over the border. Rabbi Ruderman, there's a very famous story from the Arizona when he lived in the Republic of Lithuania here in, in Slobodka, which is in Kanas. If he wanted to see the Chavetz Chaim, it was over here, he had to go through Germany and do it that way. You can't go straight. You see? Uh, and that was the legacy, unfortunately, that was left over here. So you get a lot of resentful minorities. You have a big country called Poland with a lot of people who don't want to be there or don't want the Poles there. Uh, as I said before, if you just look at the map, you can already start to see the mess. By the way, none of this is true today. The map has been completely redrawn after World War II. I'm talking about the way it was at that time. Uh, Poland now is a parliamentary democracy. They really were. So they said about Poland, like England and France and the others, they're going to have elections. And, you know, like Israel, and they have a lot of political parties and all that kind of stuff. A lot of political parties. Here, let's take a look. Here's a few, and not all. You have the Polish Socialist Party, which had been Pilsudski, National Democrats, which were the bad guys, the Itzahara. You have the Peasant Party. You have the Christian Democrats. They have German parties. What does that mean? A lot of Germans end up in the new borders. Like if you used to live in Posen, and the Prussians took it over back then, a lot of Germans settled there, and now they find themselves in Germany. They don't want to be in Poland. They're Germans. But the Poles say, well, then move back to Germany. No, we want to stay here. So it's a, it's a democracy, so they start the German party. You get it? It's called a minor party. You know who has this Israel, state of Israel? They have Arab parties. Okay? And they're not loyal to the state, are they? No. They're in favor of their own. I, understand. I mean, I get it. So that's what happens in Germany. You got Ukrainian parties, you got Lithuanian parties, you also have Jewish parties. Jewish parties, a bunch of them, naturally. And, well, I'm serious, you know, because Jews are, are significantly divided by this time between Zionism, not Zionism, from and not from this, that, and the other, socialism, not socialism. It's, it's what happens. I mean, in, from a culture point of view, if you're one of these Yiddishist type professors, something like that, you love Poland in the 1920s and 30s. It's like 100 newspapers, 100 magazines come out all the time, because every particular Mishagash has its own newspaper and library system and all the rest of it. So it's very rich in that kind of way. But uh, from our perspective, they're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic, aren't they? Because we all know, within a few years, they all got killed. So it gives a special quality to it. But I'm talking about before that happened. There are other parties. So now you have a parliament where everybody's uh, carrying one. Now what happens over here? Um, Poland is a parliamentary democracy. The Jews are 10% of the population. There's no other country in the world like that. There's 30 million Poles, and there's 31 million Poles, and there's 3 million Jews. 3.3 million Jews. So it's 10%, a little more actually. Uh, the Polish leaders don't know what to do with such a big minority. Okay? This is why Jabotinsky, the famous Zionist leader who lived in Poland and traveled through there a bunch of times, he said, we face now something called objective anti-Semitism, which means it's not that the Poles are bad, the situation is bad. You have a rising middle class, they want to get jobs, the Jews are in the way. Children are growing up, they're getting a high school education, they want to start a, start a store, get a business, get a job with the government, become a professional, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, and Jews are already there. So what are we supposed to do? Be poor? And it's not right. It's not their country. It's our country. I don't want to play a game that I always lose. So don't tell me about marriage system and all the rest of it. I want affirmative action. No, I'm serious. And what is it? how do you get affirmative action? The government should do something about it. What should the government do? Make a law that the Jews can't have a 7-Eleven. Make the law that the Jews can't have a, a lawyer. 
Well, you can't write exactly all using those words, but a clever lawyer can write words. Agreed? They can have that effect. You see? You can, for example, say, no one can have a store that sells cigarettes unless they were a, a, a veteran in the Polish army. You get it? Uh, how many Jews are veterans in the Polish army in 1920? There are all different ways of doing it, okay? And lots of Jews will suffer an economic war against them, uh, pushed by the government and the society in the 1920s and 30s. So here you have the new Poland, but it's worse than the old Poland, a lot worse, a lot, lot worse in many respects. Um, the Jews live in Poland, but when they take a census, 90%, 89%, say their native language is Yiddish or Hebrew. So then what are they saying? This is not Polish. So what are you doing in my country? <laughs> you understand? We're citizens of Poland with the rights of citizenships, but we're not Polish. Not good. See? Now in the big good old USA where you have hundreds of millions of people, a giant country, you can get away with that sort of thing to some degree. But we don't even like it over here. If you have too many Mexicans and Spanish, they already started the politicians complaining about that and they need walls. Because it's uh, Spanish, it's not English. Imagine you have 10% of the population, and they look funny too, you know, most of them. They, 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 you know, from a Polish point of view, it's disgusting. You know, the Hasidic, they, they don't like it. So you, this is what Jabotinsky means by objective anti-Semitism. The situation is bad, which therefore he said, the only solution is to get a Jewish state in Palestine now, today. There is no other way. You get it? So you move everybody out, because the Poles aren't bad, some bad. We Jews in Gullis are in a bad situation. When we were brought in, it was good. And there were peasants, and therefore the middle class was, didn't exist, so we filled the niche. It was good then, but it's not good today. And what are we supposed to do? Drop dead? What are we supposed to do? So uh, the government, naturally, tries to help the Poles. But that's experienced by Jews' discrimination. Because as I said before, if you pass a law that's saying only somebody can speak Polish, can uh, you know, have this kind of a shop or that kind of store. Or if you're giving a government contract out, you only give it to people who can uh, you know, make a presentation in Polish, all the rest of it, you're immediately excluding through clever means the Jews. After a period of economic inflation and, and chaos, because the first years of Poland had been wars, so the money was crazy and the economy was crazy, finally one of the National Democrats Party, a very famous person, Vladislav Grabsky, becomes the Prime Minister and Secretary of the Treasury. It's in the mid-20s. He's impressive in many ways. He beats inflation. That's pretty good. He reorganizes the currency. The Polish currency used to be a joke, and he made it real, backed by gold. Uh, he stimulates industry. But to pay for all this, he puts in all these taxes on the lower middle class. So basically, if you have a small store, uh, you triple the taxes, quadruple the taxes. Who does that hit? Poles don't have small stores in 1925. Very few do. Okay? Uh, that's why I said before, you can design... By the way, he didn't deny it. He said, you know, Jews are a foreign element. He's a Domofsky follower. He's a national Democrat. And uh, this way we'll drive them out and, and, and bring Poles in. That's all very good. And what about the Jews? Let them leave. Let them drop dead. I don't care. It's not my problem. Now I'll tell you something um, strange and sad and funny. As re this happens in the middle of the 1920s. The people who are hit hard are your store owners and small businessmen. That's who it is. Your, small, your store owners and small businessmen. 
35,000 pick of a move to Israel. It's called the fourth Aliyah. In fact, in Zionist literature, it's called the Grabsky Aliyah, because this guy. They all go to Tel Aviv and place like that. Why do they go to Tel Aviv? They're not kibbutzniks. They're not going to Palestine to found the collective farm and sweat in the uh, orchards, making uh, or growing oranges and things like that. So the Zionists don't like them. Chaim Weissman doesn't like them. He makes a famous speech where he says, go back. It makes me, we don't want to bring Nalevsky Street to tell you, God forbid. Nalevsky Street is like Orchard Street, Hester Street, you know. Says, we don't want this. This is the opposite. What an idiot. These 35,000 are actually very good material. The Zionist movement at that time, the dominant force, was the socialist Zionists, what you call labor Zionists, the Golden Meir types. They're disgusting. They only want people to come if they fit the right profile, the Gucci Ali, as I call it. You have to be young, you have to be healthy, you have to be willing to work in a kibbutz or a moshav, you have to be willing possibly in Jewish industrial um, uh, works to be a proletariat, you have to be uh, muscular and all the rest of it. The enemy is the bourgeoisie in the middle class. That's the stupidest thing they ever heard. Why do I say that? These are 35,000 people. First of all, they made Tel Aviv, number one. Because Tel Aviv was small, and then 35,000 people showed up. Second of all, your low and middle class are your entrepreneurs. They're the people who take risks and put their own backs into it. They start small, and they end up with Macy's. Some don't. Some spend their whole life you know, having a push cart. But some do, correct? And then they end up with large enterprises and employ thousands of other people. And that's the only way countries grow in a normal cycle. And that's what Israel has eventually had to do after 40 years under the Labor Party. By the time in the 1990s, Israel has gone to its root, what we call today startup nation. See, so are people who are, like I said before, taking the trouble to move to Tel Aviv in all the hot weather, bringing a few bucks with them, wanting to start a store of some kind or another, What's your problem? No, 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 they're going to be middle class Zionists. They won't be members of the Labor Zionist Party, member of the General Zionist Party. They're going to want to, you know, laws that will favor uh, the capitalism and, uh, you know, basically what we call today Republicans. Oh, God forbid. You understand? God forbid. And uh, they're strongly discouraged coming. This is so disgusting because if they hadn't had that uh, business, another 35 and another 35 and another 35 would have walked in in the 1920s before the Arabs had any trouble. And the reason I'm saying this is because in the old system under the 1920s and 30s, if you had $5,000, you can get in just on that. It's called the capitalist clause, because the British were capitalists. So if you $5,000 that time was more than $5,000 today, but still, it's not a million dollars. So the type of people I'm talking about could scrape together five grand. It's not moving to Palestine. And what's wrong with living in Tel Aviv? I'm, I'm, I'm asking a serious question. What's wrong with living in Tel Aviv? You have to go and live out there. In the, the, listen, more power to the kibbutzim. I'm serious. No problem. More power to them. And the more the merrier. And they do wonderful work, all the rest of it. What's the problem living in Tel Aviv? They'll say like this. They say, well, you're not a Zionist. You just, it's the same thing as living in Warsaw. So what's wrong? You're right. It's the same thing living in Warsaw. But I'm living in Israel. What's your problem with that? And here I'll speak Hebrew. And I'll live in my own country. I had a store there. I'll have a store here. What is the problem? So it's a great tragedy because... At least 100, maybe two, 300,000 Jews could have been saved from the Holocaust that way. But it didn't happen. So this is what they call the Grabsky Aliyah. Anyway, don't get me started. Now, um, uh, so I don't blame the Elbaums, you know, 
related to Chaim Weizmann and all that, but you know, he, he really screwed up big time. Uh, and so the question for the Polish Jews is, uh, you know, what's the direction? Where's it going? Now, the Jews, naturally, have basically four sets of parties. I didn't say four parties, four sets of parties, because it's Jewish. Uh, they have the socialists, the Bundists. These are the Yiddish-speaking types. They're atheists, and they believe that they're absolutely part of Poland, and Poland has to undergo a socialist transformation and all the rest of it. You have the Zionist parties. I'll give you an example. The Mizrahi, the labor Zionists, the general Zionists, this, that, and the other. They have the Haredi parties, basically what we call the Agoda. You understand? And they have something called the Volkspartei, which is just Jewish. You understand? We're normal, just Jewish. We want to defend Jewish interests. Look at this. Here's a typical day. These are all members of the Senate and the House of Representatives in Poland. This guy's obviously in the Agoda, <laughs> right? Agreed? <laughs> okay. uh, here's the enemy of the religious. Uh, it's a Greenbaum, we'll talk about in a second. And here are these other guys. This guy is, I can't tell what he is. The, the point, no, I'm serious. Uh, it was a very interesting situation. But uh, I forget who that was. Was that Rabbi Trockenheim, maybe? He, I don't know if they could speak Polish even. Yeah, but they got elected, you know. So it wasn't a pretty scene, but it, it was what it was. Now, uh, <laughs> here's one way of going. Because the Jews faced the challenge of how to work out of Jewish politics. It's basically a machlokas, which is interesting down to the present time. The leader of the Zionists was Isaac Grimbaum, and he said like this, the Poles are a bunch of anti-Semitan. We have to advocate for Jewish and min minority rights. I'll say it again, Jewish and minority rights in the Polish same. The same way Hanan Zuebi argues in the Israeli Knesset for the Arab rights. Okay? Same way. And so the laws and Poles wrote are in such a way favoring them that any party that doesn't get such and such a number of votes won't get a seat. So I'm going to go to the Germans, to the Ukrainians, to the Slovenians, and all the other groups, the Belarusians, and so let's join one party called the Minorities Party. And that way we'll go, collectively speaking, we'll get votes and we'll divvy up the seats. And it worked. The, the Minorities Party got the second highest number of seats in the Polish parliament, the same. Now you tell me how it made the Poles feel. Well, let's put it this way. How would you feel if the Arab Party joined together, which they did in the last election? Now they have 10. And they were successful, and they became the second largest party in the Knesset. The Jews would be up in arms. You see? So that's what happened over here. Okay? Uh, as a result, the Haredim are very uncomfortable with this. Because they didn't like the hatred that it brings in its way from the Poles. It just made things worse. They said, it's better to, uh, how should I put it, be a Stadlin. Uh, work behind, lobby behind the scenes. Um, show the Poles that were loyal friends of theirs. We appreciate what they did for us. That's what they did in Hungary. Okay? In Hungary, whenever they took a census, all the Jews, the, even the Satmar said, our language is Hungarian, our thing is Hungarian, and now if we need some help for Shabbos, you can talk to the guy, you know, like a lobbyist does. But in Poland, Greenbaum, the other side is, don't be, uh, you know, a ghetto Jew or something. Demand your rights like a man. Okay? Here, take a look at this. Here's from the... Uh, can I see how good old this guy's a senator in Poland? Right? I forget his name. It, no, it's not. He said, no, this isn't. No, he, he was actually a millionaire. I forget, he's a Hasidic guy. He was a, a, a millionaire businessman. That's why he became a, a senator. But if that's, if that's your Senate, how does Domovsky feel when this guy gets up to make a motion? I'm just trying to show you what life was like. These, these are Hasidic rabbis and all this. All right, that's enough. Now, um,
And that's the Knesset Agdol. That's where they had the famous picture of Chovetz Chaim that some of you will be familiar with. They, they, they found in an old film archive in University of North Carolina that somebody had taken a um, newsreel for about five minutes of the Agoda Convention of 1923. You have all the Chavitz there and the Chana Wasserman and all this kind of stuff. And it was lying there for years and only recently did somebody take it out and it like went viral. Uh, but you see, who are these guys with the beards? Some of them are congressmen and senators in Poland. He said, that's a senator? If your constituency all Hasidim, don't be surprised. Now, by the way, this guy Greenbaum, who was an atheist and all the rest of it, um, he declared war on the Agoda because he said, you guys are kissing up to the polls. And he said that the minority party shouldn't give them any seats. Okay? And so you had big fights. Uh, so the Agoda counterattacked, and uh, when he ran for office, they put a Hasidic guy in there, and he knocked him out. You understand it's agreement. This is the this is the grandfather of Nat Lewin, with the Rasha Rov, Hadrashvel Ian, if you know what that is, who was a Hasidic Rebbe with a college education. I don't know how he did it. He had a gymnasium uh, education in uh, Poland and before the First World War. So uh, it's interesting. You know, it's like I say, his son is Isaacman and Nat Lewin and all the rest of it. Uh, so he knocked out the Zionist candidate. So there was a lot of Jewish politics. You'll be shocked to hear, you know, going on in Poland among the Jews. And all I can tell you is that the democracy, parliamentary democracy, with so many parties and a lot of corruption, started bothering Pilsudski, who didn't like this system, because he said like this, it's going to weaken the country, then Russia will attack us. He was right. I'll tell you again, he was, he was not dumb, but he was, I don't know what the right word is, obtuse in certain ways. And so in 1926, Pilsudski launched a coup d'etat with many supporters who felt as he did, and they took over the country. Here's a newsreel from yesterday called uh, Europe's New Mussolini, right? That is before Hitler came along, you know. So Mussolini wasn't considered that bad. Marshal Pusutsky, the new dictator, reviews the troops. This is a newsreel from the old days of the silent movies. And there's Pilsutsky, uh, who is the uh, military commander, and he says, I'm taking over the country. And he did. And he called this move movement the sanation movement. We would call it sanitation. Sanation movements, I want to clean up, bring health to a corrupt system. You understand? So he was, you see, he's, a, he's an army guy. But I'm going to tell you something. He wasn't a dictator like Hitler Mussolini. He just, I can't stand all the parliamentary junk. And what I want to do is like this, reform the system by putting it under a benevolent dictator, namely me. Okay? Now, and he, was, and he was a benevolent dictator in the following sense. He's very, he, he ruled the country very much like Augustus Caesar. Let's go to the next one. Yeah, Augustus Caesar, who said like this, I'm here if things ever get out of hand. Meanwhile, you can run the show like normal. You can have a Congress, you have elections, all the rest of it. But if anybody does something bad or stupid or whatever, then you do. Uber. Augustus Caesar, when he was the emperor of Rome, was just a senator like the others. And, you know, people disagree with him. You're allowed to disagree with him. But every once in a while, he said like this, I think we should really do this. In which case, they all said, okay. <laughs> I think it would really be a good idea. Sometimes he didn't mind somebody disagreeing with him. So that's who Pilsudski was. If you gave him a lot of trouble, he'd throw you in a jail for a while. But, you know, not really. And basically, I'm running the country. Uh, he didn't have a job. He said, there's a prime minister, there's a president, they can all do it. But if necessary, I step in. Okay? And when it comes to military matters, foreign policy, you run it by me. Because you guys are a bunch of boobs and your Russia will take us over, Germany will take us over. That's, that's what it was. Now I want to tell you something. Uh, this was good for the Jews. It was a dictatorship of nine years until he died. 
Here's Bosutsky coming to a Jewish town, and here are the elders giving him bread and salt. It's exactly like it was in the Polish Lithuania. This could, this could take place in the year 1600. This could be a duke or a prince of Poland back in the time of the Ramon. You get it? And he was that type. See, so I'm a benevolent, that's what I mean when I say I'm a benevolent despot. And for the Jews he was, because Bosutsky is like this. Don't make these laws against the Jews. Don't, don't bother them. They don't bother us. You know, the, the, the Ukrainians are a pain in the neck because they're trying to make their own country. Lithuanians, the Germans, they're all something. The Jews, are, you know, they, don't, they don't want anything. I mean, they're a little weird, but you give them time on their own way and basis, they'll Polonize. You know, it might take 100 years or 200 years, you know, leave them alone. And the Jews therefore liked him. But most of his followers weren't like him. He was unusual because he came from his background. Okay? The type of guy that's going to follow Pilsudski like an army colonel or something like that, he's usually going much more of a mamzer, correct? That's just who they are, and don't like the Jews. Uh, they were Polish nationalists, but they didn't have his sympathy for the Jews. And once he's gone, which he died in 1935, then it was bad news for the Jewish people. Uh, now, I'm going to tell you something. A big problem you had in Poland, I'm going to show you something. I just found it today on the internet. I want you to look at it. It has um, subtitles. Uh, starvation. Because of these government uh, acts and other things, because of the disruption of the borders, the economy for the Jews was really wrecked. Now, some people were able to make a, a go of it. Like I told you, some people could be millionaires even in the 1920s and 30s. They could. But a lot of people, what we call the Jewish middle class, was really ruined by all the junk I'm talking about over here. And um, it was starvation. And I think I've told you before, the American Jews had a free soup kitchen in every Jewish town in Poland. And I mean, that's what we had for breakfast, that's what we had for lunch, and that's what, you heard of the joint. That's what the joint did, the Joint Distribution Committee, correct? Uh, that's not all they did, but that's the most important thing they did. And it was a good soup, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not being funny when I say it, you know, they put stuff in it, you know, like your grandmother used to do, because this is the whole food. You get it? And a lot of people didn't have it. Here I found today, they're interviewing a bunch of ex-Yeshiva guys from the 20s and 30s. They were starving. Look at this. This is very interesting. Gedichte mit Teure, gesitzen gelernt, 15, 18 Schuhe tuk, keiner hat sich gekickt oder sei, keiner hat sich nicht interessiert und sei. In der Blinde Ruhe das gesehen, wenn er Ruhe in der Pusch steht, verloren Blinde. Und gesehen, wie gewaltige, gewaltige Keuches gehen leibet. Also, wenn er in Gebuchen, wo so ein Kind wachsen, wie Gedeules, hat keiner hat sich gekickt oder sei, sind gewohnt gut nicht. In der Sitzung sehr weigert ihn, hat er alle jungen Gesicht, wie er so offen in machen als der Buchem, der größte Balke Schreines, soll wachsen etwas als spezielle Sache. Ich bin gewesen ein jünger Bocherl, aber ein kleiner Lodge. Ich bin mir zusammen mit dir gewesen, gewesen etliche tausend Kinder, so wie ich. Ich bin dann gewesen, aber mit zwei Jahren, zwölf, dreizehn Jahre. Ich bin mir so wie ich, auf schon tausende Bochermlach, von verschiedenen Städtlich. Wir können lernen, aber zu essen hat man nicht gehabt. 
Jedes Kommissieren, Rage und Schäpp Matthias, aber alle Bois, so geht Messen, noch haben sie noch keine Jahre zu schlafen. Das wäre nicht so große Schwierigkeiten. Aber Poschet hat viele gegangen beten, zwar Menschen haben viele Energie, also rein in der Buche, es heißt Naturgebet, der Mensch hat schon ganz jeder Sache Kinder dort. Er hat gesagt, ich werde da kann ich mehr reinnehmen. Es hat schon gestern bei einem mädchen Kinder Talk. Also er denke ich, bei mir gewesen, ich bin ein Geist am Essen gewesen und er hat zwei in der Woche, es hat nicht gerade getan. Aber Pusch hat nicht viel zu essen. Ich habe auch gelernt, ich habe das gelernt, ja. Ich habe nicht gerade zu essen, ich habe nicht gerade zu schlupfen. Ich komme in eine Schiebe, eine ausgematete Englisch-Sprachebuchhandlung. Aber es hat auch gekommen, Essen mittig. Und es gegeben, alte Brot. Weil die Schiebe hat nicht gerade kein Geld zu kaufen. Dann hat sie geblieben, die Kleidung und die Geschäfte. In der Stadt geblieben Brot, hat mir das gegeben, ins alte Brot. Aber dann, jeder hat gerade das Christ ein Stück frische Brot, das hat gekriegt, ein Meutzke, was heißt ein Meutzke? Hat gekriegt, Meutzke heißt ein, ein Meutzke, ein Prozent. Das hat gekriegt, frische Brot. Meutzke hat er geheißen. Ich denke, das war ein. Wir haben hingebrochen, das hat es gewollt essen, damals. Ich sage, Meutzke, noch ein Meutzke gibt. Meutzke gibt noch ein Meutzke. I think what made the point, the, um, is it was a, it was a starvation. People, most Americans, I mean, you know, we live, thank God, in a completely different environment, uh, obviously. But, uh, but they didn't. So uh, the Jews were really badly affected by the economy. In the time of the Ramon, they had plenty to eat. In the time of the 1920s and 30s, they didn't know what to eat. Isn't that, isn't that weird? Isn't that, you always think that the farther ahead you get in history, the, the better the living standards. Not in Eastern Europe, okay? Not in Eastern Europe. But on the other hand, you could practice Judaism. You know, uh, uh, Baron Cutler ran away from Russia to Poland. Used to be in Slots, the yeshiva, and then made it in Kletz. Ochana Wasserman ran away over the border to Abramovich because they wanted to be in Poland. Ran away from Russia. Lubavitcher Rebbe, the old one, you know, Friedrich, ran away from, well, he kicked out of the uh, Soviet Union, went to Poland. He ended up uh, near Warsaw, in Otvotsk, and a place said, Ah, if Poland's such a bad place, why is everyone going to go there? It's bad in some respects, it's good in others. That's what I'm trying to get across. And you, at least you can be, you know, you can practice your religion. And overall, Many Jews in the 1920s and 30s actually were Polonizing. Okay, what's happening? More and more Yiddish out, Polish in. It's like America. People don't know this. By the 30s, a lot of times the parents spoke to the kid in Yiddish, kids answered back in Polish. More and more kids go to Polish schools. Even from schools in Poland will include Polish and secular studies, especially the Beisiakos, but even not. Uh, what's happening with Observance of mitzvahs as the 1920s and 30s goes on, not great, right? It's, you can understand why. You can understand why. What happens if you do Polonize, if you, if you become Polish? Janusz Korczak, who is famous, remember he went with the kids of me? He was Jewish, totally assimilated to Polish, 
Uh, he held important positions in, in, in Polish society. He also suffered discrimination, but he had radio shows. I mean, he was able to be somebody. This guy, believe it or not, you never heard of him. He's like the uh, Yehuda Alevi of Poland. He was one of the greatest poets in the 1920s and 30s, Julian Tobin, in Polish. I mean, he's totally assimilated. He didn't convert, but he's You could go that route if you wanted to. And he got a better acceptance in the government and the society. There even was an entire Jewish culture, believe it or not, of Chachmas Yisrael, the Haskal, Jewish history and Jewish culture studies in Polish language, where people did significant work like they do today. You have Jewish historians talking in English, right? I've heard of such things. So uh, here you have Jewish in, in Polish. Mayor Balaban and uh, Scheifer and uh, Moses Shore. These are not names that people know today, but they were very famous names once upon a time. And their books are in Polish and they lecture in Polish. They had university degrees from Poland and they were respected by the Poles because they are Jewish. That's true. You can't get away from that. But nevertheless, they're kind of normal, you see? Uh, the Jews among themselves had a cultural comp. They're fighting like crazy over what's the right direction to go. And then comes the 1930s, which is the terrible decade for the Poles and for the Jews. For Poland, the foreign policy nightmare is starting to happen because Poland is, let's go, monkey in the middle, isn't it? Here's Germany, here's Russia. Sooner or later, Germany and Russia are going to team up sooner or later and, and, and stab Poland. Why not? Okay? And uh, it already starting to happen already in the 1920s. People don't notice so much. At the Treaty of Apollo, the Russians and the Germans got together and they said, You've been hurt by the Versailles Treaty. We've been hurt by the Versailles Treaty. Let's secretly cooperate in military affairs. And they did. All during the 20s and 30s, the Germans, who were not allowed by the Versailles Treaty to have an army, used to send their officers and conduct exercise in Soviet Union. Meanwhile, the Russians picked up a lot of chachma and military stuff that way. And who's going to be the first victim of a cooperation between Germany and and, and Pol I tell you again, Pilsusi was no dummy. He saw the way it's going. And the best proof of this is... Um, he knew France is not reliable. That's who the France are. They're not reliable. Okay? Uh, and to be perfectly honest, that's why Pilsudski made a dictatorship, because he knew he can't rely on France. Watch this. In 1933, Hitler came to power. As soon as Hitler came to power, Pilsudski went to England and France. He said, let's attack Germany now. We get a chance. Because you're going to be sorry if you don't do this. I know it's going to happen. And right now he's weak because he's just starting. If France declares war on one side and Poland declares war on the other side, I got two big armies, we'll go in, we'll knock Hitler out, and, and, and you'll see, you did yourself a chesed. The French backed off, the British backed off, you know, 1930s, Chamberlain, Baldwin, all the rest said, we want peace in our time. Didn't happen. He was 100% correct. Okay? He died in 1935, um, and then Poland had to seek some kind of friendship with Germany because they're scared of Russia. But then you have the problem of, you know, what are you going to do about this? The fact that G Poland breaks up Germany, Hitler, of all people, is never going to be okay with that. As Germany gets stronger over the 1930s, Poland becomes more and more vulnerable. That's just the way it goes. Domestically, as I told you before, Pilsudski died in 1935. He did not leave a successor. And so afterwards, look what happens in the next one. The spirit of Domowski is captured the hearts and minds of the Poles. Right? Once he's gone... Pilsudski, so he becomes the Yetzirah that uh, dominates. And the years 1935-1939 are terrible for the Jews in Poland. The government actually says these words, get out, Judenraus, leave, go anywhere, just go. They cooperate with Jabotinsky, the Polish government. They trained the Irgun to be terrorists 
because they figure maybe they can take over, knock the British out, set up a Jewish state in 1930s in Palestine, and then we move all the Jews out. And Jabotinsky said, that's a great idea. By the way, it was a great idea, right? Oh, well, knowing the Holocaust is coming. I mean, in their mind, I'm going to play a sad what if. What if in 1938 they would have been able to pull this off? Train after train, ship after ship of Jews getting out of Poland. The Poles said, bye-bye. And, and the Jews all go to Palestine, and next Poland would get involved in war. And I say, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not my problem. It didn't happen, as we all know. And so uh, Palestine doesn't happen. They can't go to the U.S. FDR, you know that. So what are you going to do? You end up with boycotts and Jim Crow laws. Uh, there are Jew benches in the universities. Only 10% or 5% can be uh, students, and they have to sit in a special row. It's much like, you know, uh, said, Menachem Begin grew up in this environment. Uh, he graduated Harvard University, the Polish Harvard, University of Warsaw. Law school, who's serious about this? The best law school in 1935, the year uh, uh, Pilsudski died. After that, he probably wouldn't have been able to graduate. And then things got like lethal and terrible for Jewish students. University got beat up. You got this, and the government is fine with it. The National Democrats are in charge. So it got really bad. The boycotts come along uh, because now the right-wingers, talking about the National Democrats, say, oh, yes, don't buy their 7-Elevens. Put them out of business that way. Uh, they ruin. The Catholic Church gets involved. Now, by the way, it's, again, I always try to be accurate, at least to the degree that I'm able to. I have the famous speech in front of you of Cardinal Holland, who was the number one Catholic clergyman in Poland. He's not a dummy. And what he says is, is actually very interesting in a famous circular letter, which talks of a lot of things, including the Jews. Look what he says over here. Read it. This is what the cardinal sends out in a public letter. So long as the Jews remain Jewish, Jews, a Jewish problem exists and will continue to exist in Poland. It is a fact that the Jews are waging war against the Catholic Church. They're steeped in free thinking, meaning atheism, and constitute the vanguard of atheism of the Bolshevik movement and revolutionary activity. It's an interesting argument. It is a fact that the Jews have a corruptive influence on morals and their publishing houses are spreading pornography. I don't know. He might be right about that in Poland 1930s. It is true that Jews are perpetrating fraud, usury, and dealing in prostitution. It is true that from a religious ethical point of view, Jewish kids are having a negative influence on the Catholic kids in the schools. But then he says, not all Jews are this way, and he forbade assaults on Jews. Quote, there are very many Jews who are believers, who are honest, just, kind, and philanthropic. There is a healthy, edifying sense of family in very many Jewish homes. We know Jews, meaning I know Jews, he says, who are ethically outstanding, noble, and upright. No, it's not like these guys. One may love one's own nation more, but one may not hate anyone. So I want the Poles to be for Poland, number one. But that doesn't mean you have to hate the Jews, okay? Just stay away from them. Not even Jews. You can't even hate Jews. It's forbidden to demolish a Jewish store, damage their merchandise, break windows, or throw things at their homes. Because Catholic teaching is you can't do anything physical. That's an old church teaching. It is forbidden to assault, beat up, maim, or slander Jews, which was happening all the time. One should honor and love Jews as human beings, as neighbors. Keep going. But it's good to prefer your own kind when it comes to shopping. Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's not crazy what he's saying. Do, do, do you, see, you, you understand? It's not crazy what he's saying. If you, if you, if you say, I guess, shop for your own, I mean, he's entitled to do that. It's just devastating for the Jews. 
uh, to avoid Jewish stores and stay away from Jewish stalls in the marketplace, stay away from the harmful moral influence of Jews, keep away from their anti-Christian cultures, and especially the Jewish newspapers and demoralizing Jewish publications. From their point of view, it's you know very negative. Sounds like a Republican. <laughs> you see? Yeah, we do not. We Catholics do not honor the indescribable tragedy of that nation. Why do we Catholics not honor what he admits is the indescribable tragedy of the nation? They brought on themselves by rejecting Jesus. See, that's a Catholic teaching. Get it? We, which was the guardian of the idea of Messiah, which was born the Savior. When divine mercy enlightens them to accept, accept him as our Savior, will greet them in the, the Jew and, and, and Christian ranks with joy. I understand what it sounds like, but do you see my point? It's not simple. Okay? He wasn't simple. It's not Hitler. It's not simple. When the Holocaust comes, it's a mess. Because you hear multiple teachings. Somebody could latch on to the first paragraph and ignore the second. Somebody could latch on to the second paragraph and ignore the first. Uh, and, that, and that will happen. Question of how much it went and where, but that will happen. Okay? So it's actually, I regard it personally as a, as a fascinating talk. Now, um, the hour is late, but I want to share very briefly two uh, little movies with you. Uh, I call one the Titanic, because just before the war, it's 1939, and with all the junk that I've been describing and the boycotts and Jim Crow laws and the violence even that takes place, for most people in Jewish life, life goes on. There's somebody, American Jew, came to Warsaw, and he went to the Jewish neighbor of the ghetto in 1939, like a month or two before World War II broke out, and it's like regular. It's a color picture, that's why. Take a look at this. You can turn the sound off. You don't need the sound. We don't need the sound. Right? Somebody took a picture of this? It's a Jewish neighborhood in Warsaw. So, you know, some are religious. There's a guy in... No, I'm trying to say, it's not a neighborhood, you know, exclusively for Jews. It's where Jews live. These are storekeepers, as I said before, or maybe uh, no longer have stores. They look like, you know, unemployed. You know what You have it like everywhere else. I get it? You have your, these are Polish drunks. I'm serious. Uh, here's, you know, they're, they're looking at the guy with the camera, obviously. Uh, you don't get the pic, at least I don't get the picture over here. Oh, life is terrible, and this and the other. There's politics, there's junk, but this Tuesday, you understand? And somebody came to visit over there, and they're horsing around with a guy, as you can see, and I don't know what she's doing over there. It's a fascinating, you understand? Because it was taken in color, it gives a completely different life to it, right? And he's Jewish. He's modern and they're Hasidic, as you see over there. And by the way, it's 1939. Plenty of Hasidic Jews running around there. Isn't that right? Even after all the processes that I just described. Is the Jewish ghetto a dank, narrow, dark place? No. Right? It's a, it's a neighborhood. These are not Jewish right? people. As I said before, you have employees, employers, and all the cars horsing around. And life goes on. Uh, as we all know, a month or two later, the situation obviously totally, totally transformed. So I'll leave you with these images tonight as I conclude by pointing out the problematic of trying to understand exactly what happens to the Jews in the modern state of Poland is a lot of misunderstanding, you see? It didn't have to be, but the Jews are Jews and Poles are Poles. And we kind of play off each other's, what's the right word? You know, phobias and negatives. And uh, that's food for thought for all of us, because we don't live in Poland, thank God. But it's never smart to disregard what the other person is thinking. It's always a lot smarter to act in such a way that you take into account 
you know, how you look to others as well, even if they're wrong or they're right. But um, what can I tell you? We're in such a world, and uh, prudence is prudence. Uh, the last law, with this I end, passed by this anti-Semitic government in 1939, a few months before the Second World War, was the ban shechita. Now, what is that? That's just uh, taking the Jim Crow laws all the way, meaning the Jews shouldn't be able to eat flesh, so leave the country. You don't like it, move to a country where you can get shechita. You follow? These are pressures. The law was supposed to take effect in 1942. Already in the last months, just before the war, the Aguda was revving up to lobby it like they do now. Chaim Rezegrzhensky has letters and others. Nobody will know what ever happened. It didn't matter. Because two, three months later, there's no Poland. And the Germans are in. And the last thing you have to worry about is a pain on Shkita. Okay? Whew, good night. I've spoken long enough. We'll have it. It's late. Well, maybe we'll use it next time. I'm sorry? Yeah? Yeah. I know. Believe me. I, I, yeah, I know. I get it. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com.
www.rabbidavidkatz.com.